0: Welcome to Get Your Book Seen and Sold. I am your host, Claudine Wolk. You can find me at my Substack account, claudinewolk.substack.com. We're talking all about publishing and book marketing. If you have decided that you want to write a book and you're trying to figure out how to publish it, or maybe you've already written a book and you're trying to figure out how to market it, this is the podcast slash Substack for you. Our goal is to give you great tips, by example in some cases, to help you get your book seen and sold. So join us through the newsletter or the podcast today and get your book seen and sold. In this episode of Get Your Book Seen and Sold, I do include a full author interview with Cara Robertson, who is the best-selling author of The Lizzie Borden Trial, I include the whole interview because I think it's interesting, but also because there are a lot of great inspirations in the way she wrote this story. And she did get traditionally published, which she talks a little bit about in the interview. And she admits that she was very lucky to be traditionally published and they did a lot of the work for her you know some of the things that we talk about on the podcast and in the newsletter is that if you're self-published there are so much that you have to do yourself you have to do the interior design or hire somebody to do it of the book you have to hire someone to design the cover and the back cover and get everything all your files in the right format for both a hardcover book or a print on demand book and an ebook. And she didn't have to do any of that. Um, she talked about this nonfiction book and the amount of research she had to do. Hopefully, you'll like my questions on that front if it's something that applies to you. The other interesting thing is that. Uh Kara and I keep I forgive me, I'm a Philly girl, so I'm mispronouncing her name as Kara, but it is Kara. Kara did uh, a lot of research. Um she was a lawyer and to cover the trial of Lizzie Borden as a lawyer and the way she decided to attack the book is really interesting. So if you're writing a nonfiction book, and you are having issues with how to write on a particular subject, this interview may have something for you as well. And the unique twist that she gave to material that has been written about, and I think you guys know this, you know, it's been that there are many books on the subject of the Lizzie Borden trial, there were movies, there were TVs. I remember the one with Elizabeth Montgomery. That um, remember the gal from Bewitched? You remember that one? Um, and I mentioned that in the interview with with Kara, and she she did something pretty unique, which which she always want to do. If you're writing a book and it's a nonfiction book, you want to give it a unique spin. And the fact that she was an expert on the subject only made it more interesting. The other part of the uh, interview that I thought was interesting was just the amount of time that it took her um, to write this and to put it together, and that she's already on to her next subject, and it will be um, a second book coming out. Hopefully, she'll she'll allow us to do the interview. The other thing I wanted to mention too, from the from the side of marketing, is that uh, you know I don't know Kara, I. I literally literally I loved her book and I loved the subject and I reached out. So from a marketing standpoint when you're pitching your book, you know, you got to ask and it never hurts to ask and you you're not, you're not going to get a yes all the time, but you will never know unless you ask. And one of my techniques and you're welcome to use this too is that when I'm trying to interview an author, and I send a pitch, an email pitch. I put right in the subject line that it's an interview opportunity. And in the, in the body of the email, I pitch that I'm going to put it on three different platforms. Because you know I have the Stories and Strategies podcast and the Get Your Book Seen and Sold podcast. And I also um, record as a contributor for a New Jersey radio station. And that's that's often a something that looks attractive to a potential interviewee. And the other thing that I do is I add some questions that I plan to ask because I want the author to know that I put some thought into what I want to interview them about. And, and that seems to usually get Um, a great reaction. So anyway, enjoy the interview. And I hope that you pick up some of these nuggets as that I just mentioned as as it goes along. I know it's a long one, but hopefully it's a worthwhile one. And I look forward to uh, having you sign up for the newsletter and um, start writing some things in the comments. I'd love to hear from you and and to, to know if the material that I'm providing is useful to you. So enjoy the interview. Kara Robertson is an author who began researching the boarding case as a Harvard undergrad in 1990. She holds a PhD from Oxford University and a JD from Stanford Law School. She clerked at the Supreme Court of the United States, served as a legal advisor to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague, and has written for various publications. Her scholarship has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Humanities Center, of which she is a trustee. The Trial of Lizzie Borden is her first book. Welcome, Cara. Thanks for having me. I loved your book. Oh, thank you. I loved it, and that's it's a favorite subject of mine. I'll, I'm really excited that you were that you were willing to do this with me. Thank you.
1: Yeah, well, I'm always curious to hear people's um, Lizzie Borden, you know, stories. Oh, like, nice. How, what, what's the What's the gateway?
0: Okay, okay, <laughs> good. For, All right. Well, let's talk about that because that's kind of my first question. Why did you think people would be interested in it, and and why w- were you so intrigued?
1: Well, it's it's sort of the American true crime story. You know, it's well, one that one that everyone's heard of in some form. You know, even if they don't really know the details.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: And, and there's something you know, there's something almost mythic about it. You know, about these people in this in this house you know, where the murders took place. Yes. And uh, it has a kind of, um, you know, locked room mystery quality to it. But, you know, there are a limited number of suspects and and a very strict timetable. And, you know, the sense of these sort of seething resentments underneath a placid surface, like all those all those aspects of it. Um, and then it results in something that, you know, becomes called the trial of the century. I mean, there are many trials that that come to get that name, but it's definitely one of them you know it, it happens at the during the heyday of yellow journalism uh, and as you can tell from the way that i treated it in the book that that you know many many journalists are dispatched to cover the story and it's it's front page news and so there's a, a a spectacle to it i mean it's an interesting trial in and of itself but then the way that it gets consumed around the country and to a lesser extent around the world is pretty fascinating
0: yeah it sure is what made you decide to write this book about the Lizzie Borden case? I think I was always interested in
1: uh, trials. You know that that um, my uh, dad's side of the family are lawyers, and I think so. It was sort of overdetermined that I'd I'd end up as one too. And and the the idea of a trial where these where these competing stories are decided uh, by a group of people who are you know representing the community at large that just seemed very interesting to me. And then of course. You know, Lizzie, the Lizzie Borden trial itself is this great unsolved case because, you know, spoiler alert, it ends <laughs> in acquittal. You know, there's really no resolution to it. She's popularly convicted by rhyme, but we don't actually know what happened. The combination of the mystery plus the fact that it is this great public trial that seems to be about more than the fate of the individual defendant. I think that that's, that, that was the real hook for me.
0: And you were interested in it as an undergrad. That's right. I was looking around for something to
1: write a senior thesis on, and it—you uh, know—it happens at such an interesting time in American history. This uh, the Gilded Age, which which now has great resonance for us because it's a a time of great inequality and uh, concern about immigration, um, but it is also a time of uh, uh, of industrialization. Of urbanization. they're just big themes in American history, uh, st- changes in the status of women. And all of that just seems very interesting as the backdrop. But of course, you know, it's the story that it's the story that draws you in,
0: yeah. And for anyone who doesn't know the story, can you give kind of a general background of the story without uh, giving anything away? <laughs> Have just
1: done the spoiler? Exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> right.
0: Uh,
1: so on August 4th, 1892, Fall River, Massachusetts, which was a then prosperous mill town, uh, the third largest city in Massachusetts, a sort of Manchester of America, um, awoke to this terrible news uh, that an elderly couple had been hacked to death in their home near the city center. Um, The two victims were uh, Andrew Borden, who was a very well-known businessman, a successful real estate um, owner, um, someone who had been descended from a very prominent family, but actually was really a self-made man, and his second wife, Abby. Um, Andrew was found on a sitting room sofa by his daughter, Lizzie. Uh, And then later it was discovered that there was another body upstairs. And that was um, his second wife, Abby's body. And she'd been um, killed by uh, 19 blows, mostly to the back of her head. Andrew had been killed by uh, 10, um, mostly to the front. Um, And so it was really this horrifying crime, something that, something that um, the police in Fall River were unprepared for. They just didn't expect anything like this. Uh, And, what made it stranger and more upsetting um than even just this double murder in such a vicious way of these elderly people um was that uh the uh suspects seemed to be limited um you know either could have been a madman that's what the assumption was that it was just someone um who'd wandered in uh, but there were some things that ruled out the idea of this you know, insane intruder, namely that the doors were locked, uh, with the exception of a side door that was usually in view of the Irish domestic servants, whose name was Bridget Sullivan. Uh, and so it just seemed very strange that somebody could have gotten in from the outside. There were two women in the house at the time of the murders. One was the victim's younger daughter, Lizzie, um, who said that she had been uh, downstairs irony at the time that her stepmother was killed and then outside uh, variously in, in the yard eating pears and then taking <laughs> them to the barn to look for a sinker at the time that her father was killed. And then the Irish domestic servant, Bridget Sullivan, who's, who had been outside at the time of uh, Abby Borden's murder, washing windows, and, and she'd been spotted by others. So that seemed to kind of rule her out as
0: well. Gotcha. Okay. So, so that that's a great summary of, of what happened. And so you decided to write the book based on I love the book, by the way, uh, read it cover to cover and it fascinated because the story of Lizzie Borden has been has been shown, you know, people have written books about it, people have mentioned it in books about crime. It's it was a TV show, I remember with Elizabeth Montgomery,
1: yeah, that that uh, movie holds up pretty
0: well, I think. It does. Movie. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Um, so the way that you addressed it though was different. You kind of went at it by covering the trial day to day, and also you brought in your legal experience. It was, it was very clear that you were applying your, you know, what you know of legal theory to what was going on in the courtroom, which was amazing, and also kind of like a police procedural. You, you go through exactly kind of what happened hour to hour, day to day, and then that kind of came up in the, in the trial again and as you covered it. But then you also used actual reporting from uh, uh, maybe three different reporters, I think, two men and a woman. Yes. So, what gave you that idea? Well, I'm a lawyer, so
1: I'm quite happy to to read transcripts of uh, legal proceedings and find them lively. But to con- convey a sense of of how actually uh, you know the case unfolded, you know, in in the audience, um, I felt like I needed um, I needed some contemporary voices who were actually present in the room, uh, and they give a lot of what you might you know you might call like color commentary right Um, they pay as much attention to the to the audience and the and the functionaries of the courtroom as as they do to the you know say the main the main participants the lawyers or the or the defendant Uh, and they're so they're able also to to track the reactions of people depending on different you know Presentations by the lawyers, and also the you know specifically the reactions of the defendant, and that becomes very important because so much of the case seems to hinge on, you know, what version of Lizzie Borden do you think is true? Like, what do you think is accurate? She's she's someone who's a bit of a cipher, you know, that she's someone who's in fact called by an unsympathetic reporter uh, the Sphinx of coolness, <laughs> you know, the this, this sort of unknowable person, and right. and she does have this remarkable self-possession. And for some, that that's a sign of ladylike bearing, a kind of inborn dignity that that sh- that act- absolutely shows her innocence. And others look at it and and see something sort of sinister, you know, that that it's unladylike and that it's um, suggests a kind of masculine nerve that is more consistent with this, these kinds of murders.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And at the time. Um how odd was it for a woman to be suspected of murder
1: it's unusual particularly for this kind of murder i mean this is a very violent murder like up close and personal violent murder and so that seems very male coded i mean different kinds of murders had different or different kinds of crimes were gendered you know there was a there was a famous case um, just before this you know in the late 1880s of a woman who had poisoned many members of her family for insurance money. Um, She was called the, you know, Borgia of Boston or the Borgia of (laughs) Somerville. Uh, And uh, she also had male accomplices. So it wasn't, it wasn't so much that it was impossible to conceive of um, a female murderer. It's just that the idea of the sort of female murderer you would have didn't match up with Lizzie Borden, at least as presented in the courtroom. So it's, It's the mismatch between the murderer and the murders or the accused person and the murders, the brutality of the murders and the ladylike defendant, somebody who, you know, ticks all the boxes of proper middle class womanhood. Yes. Um, That's not someone who you could you can imagine picking up a hatchet or an axe to kill her father and stepmother.
0: Yes. Yes. And like many people, I had heard the story of Lizzie Borden. I you you had asked me off air about my um, initiation to the story. And it was um, in college, I had this fantastic professor, and he wanted us to look at something in history, and to do a current newscast video of <laughs> reporting. How about that? Yeah. And so and, and we had these ones to select from and I picked the Lizzie Borden. And I was so nervous about it. I remember and back then um, I'm aging myself. But back then the video uh, thing was new. And so I had someone recording me. And I, I didn't know how I was going to do it. And then you know, that, that, that famous rhyme. I thought I'm gonna have fun with this. So I said Lizzie and took an axe and gave her father forty wax or mother. <laughs> when he saw what she had done, she gave her father 40 what or whatever it went. And and I got an A. And um but but at the time I thought, you know what, this is this is a crazy interesting story. And I thought that maybe everybody at the time just couldn't imagine a woman having done it. And so they kind of went through the motions of charging her and putting her through a trial, but she really was never going to get convicted. And that was wrong because your book was so well-researched and detailed. And I learned from your book uh, that that was just not the case, that the policeman really did think she did it.
1: Yeah, it is. It is this interesting tension, you know that that she's someone who who just doesn't seem like she fits the type, right? They they start out looking for someone, um, you know, some sort of deranged criminal, probably an immigrant. You know, they're kind of ra- rounding up the usual suspects at least initially, um, but then there you know there are just too many things that point towards Lizzie Borden um, in their view, and they really do believe that she was the killer. Uh, one thing that um, doesn't come out at the trial, though, you know, I do talk about it in the book that um, the prosecution's uh, out, as it were, is that, is that, you know, they really think she's probably crazy, like that that's the only explanation for something that's horrible. Uh, and so they really want her to be examined um, by a specialist, and they they try to get that that done. Um, but the defense uh, doesn't Permitted. I mean, understandably, because they they would view that as um, some sort of admission, you know, that they that they were going to make some kind of argument about insanity when, in fact, their position was just that she didn't do it. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time or, as they would have said, at the right place, you know, in her <laughs> home, attending to her own household duties, but just at a bad time because some crazy person came in and and uh, killed her father and stepmother.
0: Right. And and, and when you did all the research and and because you're a lawyer, you were able to analyze a lot of what was said for the reader and explain, you know, what's going on here and why they why they needed to talk about this evidence or why they had the jury out of the room at this time and that I think that added a lot to the story. Um, so thank you, thank you for that. And I'm wondering what we do, how important do you think it is that a lawyer tell this story, write this story? Well, the
1: a lawyer uh, had to write it in the way that I wrote it, (laughs) I guess, I guess, you know, given that I wanted to focus on the trial, uh, it it seemed important to, to have, um, you know, a legal background. And then, and then also conversely, because I had a legal background, I thought that's what I had to add to the story. You know, as you say, this is a story that, you know, it's well known, it's been told many times, Uh, but the focus is, has been on the murders alone. Uh, and then but to tell that story well, and some of the books are excellent, uh, they need to come up with this kind of theory of Lizzie Borden, you know, decide who she is. Um, and, and that means not presenting the evidence in a necessarily neutral or um, multi-layered way, kind of presenting it in a way that that fits with the theory. And I, I think there's something. You know, speaking as a reader too, that's unsatisfying about that. As as caught up as you could be in those kinds of tellings, you you sort of know the author has has stacked the deck a, a bit. And so, what I wanted to do was was present it um, in as open a way as possible, so that so that the reader can come to you know his or her own uh, opinion.
0: I think you succeeded in that, Kara, because there and you also manage to to add the tension i mean even though we know how it ends up there's still tension in the book and how you and while you're reading you're thinking oh no this is going to come out and she's going to be done or oh oh my gosh you know we 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 don't want that to come out or maybe they should bring this in (laughs) like all of those things yeah you realize that you know it's
1: not it wasn't obvious that it was going to end up this way you know that that there are that there are really things that point in in one direction or another, and you can easily imagine a different outcome.
0: Absolutely. So, I, and one of the things you also managed to document the world for women as it stood in 1892. Um, that women and I didn't know this. This was so interesting to me. You wrote that women had worked in factories and they they kind of were making some of their own money, and then all of a sudden they were kind of ousted out of those roles. Um, And you said there might have been a couple of reasons for that, maybe the the surge of immigrant labor, but also more restrictive attitudes about the place of women. And I'm quoting you there. Um, And I'm wondering, does one have anything to do with the other? In other words, was it expedient to have that opinion? Right.
1: It's a it's uh, it's a you know, it's an interesting historical point that, um, you know, we tend to assume that things were just a one particular you know there was a kind of past and now there things are different but that that there um are changes in attitudes over time and they're not necessarily kind of linear um and so the i guess the point i was trying to make uh was that there's there were more options for for women like lizzie borden a little bit earlier and obviously later um but uh, but she kind of hits a hits a spot where for um a woman like her, you know, somebody who's, who's in some respects, very lucky, you know, lucky that she doesn't have to work, you know, that, that she is supported and she, she's free to assume, you know, enjoy the presumed (laughs) or presumed leisure. Right. Um, You know, she's not someone like the, uh, the Irish immigrant housekeeper, you know, who's working hard for, working hard all day. So, so Lizzie Borden is someone who, is living out, you know, in in, in essence, a sort of middle class ideal. She lives still with her father uh, because she's unmarried, and uh, her outlet are culturally sanctioned activities, charitable activities like being a Sunday school teacher, really being mostly active in her in her church, and that was something that um, that gave her an outlet. Uh, but you know, there, there is a way in which it's also very confining. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you get a sense of that, you know, if you if you've ever been to the house, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with the house, per se. Um, And, again, compared to how she could be living, you know, how, how what her living conditions could be like, right? She's, she's um, materially uh, pretty comfortable. But there is you do get a sense of the constraints living in a, you know, with there's no option for her to really move out or do anything else. I mean, her, her one ticket out would have been marriage. And that, you know, that ship has long since sailed by the time the murders occur.
0: Right. I mean, God, for what was she 32? (gasps) The horror. Right. Right. So she's, well, (laughs) there, you know, there were women who
1: married later her, her own stepmother Abby, uh, was married at 37. So it wasn't entirely, um, impossible but that didn't seem to be something that was was really in the cards uh and you know it it obviously it didn't work out that well for abby either so
0: yeah exactly necessarily
1: (laughs) um it wasn't necessarily what she wanted for herself um but you know if you wanted you know if 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 all she wanted was material comfort you know in some like a decent way of living I, i think you'd say that. She she had that with the exception of the really bad food in the Borden house. Everything <laughs> else was fine. Was there
0: a lot written about the bad food?
1: Well, it just seems to be it's a you know it's definitely a light motif of of all books on the Borden case. It's like the world's most famous mutton stew. You know <laughs> that gets that gets reheated and reserved in the Borden house is a you can just sort of you have the visceral reaction to it. Um, and it you know it shows that it shows that uh, Andrew was a bit of a miser. Yes. Um, That he he was much more interested in the words of a contemporary journalist uh, in piling up dollars than in spending them, you know, that they could have they could have lived in a grander manner. And that was something that was supposedly a source of tension in the family between um, Andrew and his daughters, Lizzie and her older sister, Emma.
0: Absolutely. Yep. And I love and then the idea of independence kind of fascinated me that that here, you know, because she didn't have a job, um, per se, she didn't have her own financial independence. And she also was kind of in a in a class where she really could have been enjoying life. And um, they weren't living in the, you know, the area of the town where most of their peers lived. Um, and maybe that was a source of uh, frustration for her. Maybe, maybe it wasn't, but maybe it was.
1: Yeah, it's, it's such an, it's such an interesting point, And it's something that, that really gets contested at trial because the defense makes a, a big point of um, her father's, you know, generosity um, that they live in a, you know, that they live in a perfectly comfortable house and that, uh, that they have uh, you know, steam heat (laughs) and and, uh, she has pin money um, and so that she's able to, um, you know, spend on on uh, dresses and things that she might want for herself. Uh, But uh, the, you know, the dissatisfaction might well have been, you know, either comparative. In other words, they could have had a much nicer life. They could have been more cultured. Um, They could have lived in a grander surroundings and had more social opportunities Um, or, you know, even more threateningly, you know, maybe what she wanted was, you know, independence and to be able to, um, you know, make her own choices uh, about where she was going to live and how she was going to live. And that's something that uh, the prosecution really can't even bring itself to acknowledge. Right. I mean, because that's a pretty good motive. Mhm. Um if you particularly if you consider the order of the murders that the stepmother is killed first and then and then there's about an hour and a half before um, Andrew is killed. Uh, you know that makes it certain that the that Lizzie and Emma inherit all of um Andrew's
0: estate. Yes, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. You're right. Uh and so
1: if you know, that that's an explanation. I'm not saying that's what what happened. Right. But But I mean, if you if you're trying to prosecute a case, you think you would you think that that would be something that you would you would emphasize. And uh, the prosecutors really just can't can't imagine that for themselves. You know, I suppose it's possible that they thought it and then thought it would be very persuasive to the jury. And so focus on a more feminine motive, which is this kind of intense hatred and jealousy of the stepmother. You know the kind of fairy tale yes trope. yes um and then they're left with this you know real awkwardness when it comes to explaining explaining why someone who who might want to kill her stepmother you know that something something that people could understand would then actually kill her father yes you know because that's that's the murder that's that's really so distressing for everyone i mean both murders are are horrible You know, so that so that I think I think we look at them and we just think this is just horrifying and it's hard to imagine that anyone could commit them. And then even more horrifying to imagine that a child does it. Um, I mean, even a grown up, but would would kill um, a parent. But, you know, for the
0: at that time, it
1: was it was the idea of a daughter killing a father that was just so upsetting.
0: Right. Right. And Emma, she had a sister. So you have another sister who's also living in the same circumstances and she wasn't expressing that type of frustration at, at not being, you know, in the different part of town or spending money the way she felt that it should be spent, you know, from, from what we know or what the accounts that I've read as well, like she, she didn't have that same frustration that they were trying to put on Lizzie.
1: Yeah. Um, Emma's an interesting character because she's she seems um a lot more demure yeah. <laughs> in the retellings of the case. Right. And a lot more um sanguine about about uh, her life. Um she's you know she's she's uh almost a decade older than um Lizzie, and so she viewed herself uh as a kind of maternal figure, I think, when they were young. Um hmm. Uh, but it, but it is, she, you know, she at the trial tries to say that she was the one who actually had the ill feeling towards her stepmother. Um, and part of that relates to tro- property transaction that had happened um, five years before the murders. You know, the idea that there had been this um, ill will over uh, Andrew's decision to, to help out um, Abby's family by purchasing um, a, a house so that her sister could live in it you know, rent free. That's right. the shorthand version of the story. Um, and that was the idea that the board and money was flowing out of their, you know, out of their household and into Abby's household um, and viewing her as, as um, having played some kind of underhanded
0: game to get this money. Yeah. She's only married to the guy, right? Right. right. It's <laughs> a
1: lot. Hello. Yeah.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> right. She's, a, she, I mean, the thing that, the, the thing that, um, perhaps most surprised me is that is that, you know, I think she's the most sympathetic character in the story. Yes. Abby, you know, Abby, someone who really just didn't seem to have any enemies, except maybe the people living in her house.
0: Right, right. I know. Yeah, I I agree. So sad poor. I feel bad for for Abby. And the other thing, the other thing I think that was kind of interesting was, and it surprised me, the women in the trial. So this was like a modern day, like OJ Simpson. I mean, everybody was there. Everybody wanted a seat. They had it. They had to construct barricades and women in particular really wanted to see. And it seemed like they they were divided. Some women were hundred percent for Lizzie and some women were not. And that surprised me. They didn't all support her.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. Um, there are some reporters who describe it as a sort of um, a self-constituted second jury, this, this group of women um, who are regular members of the audience. Uh, And the uh, reporters also, you know, describe what they look like and what they're, what they're, how they're dressed. And note that there's a mix of, of um, what one reporter calls calico and silk. In other words, that all classes are represented. Um, And, They're also horrified because they view this, this um, intense hubbub, you know, an interest in getting in and the treating it as a sort of um, a fascinating entertainment is very unladylike. (laughs) There's even one, um, one newspaper that says, you know, if you may, uh, gentlemen, if you come home and you find your house, you know, your wife gone and your house in total disarray, don't worry. She hasn't left you. She's just gone to join the, you know, the horrible females who are all trying to get into the trial. That's
0: hilarious.
1: Yeah. Um, One of the things that's interesting is that, is that, you know, we view this as a, uh, an interest in in these kinds of things as being a modern phenomenon, you know, that the audience for true crime, for example, Mm -hmm. seems to be largely driven by women. But, but I mean, this is an example of showing that showing that um, women were pretty avid, uh, consumers of this this sort of stuff early on, and and I've certainly found that true at other, you know, in, in researching other trials to get a comparative sense of this that this wasn't the only um, this wasn't the only trial that women were interested in, but there was something special about this one. You know, the idea that it, again that I think goes back to the the kind of woman who is put on trial for this particular horrible set of murders.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing that I loved about um, your work in the book and writing the book was how you talked about the procedural on on the legal side. There's a, a concept that came up or there's a phrase that came up in the book a couple of times, and it's consciousness of guilt. And it seemed to be something that the prosecution was using as um, a defense for Lizzie. Um, in other words, you know, if she was guilty, she would have done this. If she was, if she was guilty, she would have done that, and she didn't do those things. Specifically, I guess the dress. You know, she wouldn't have burned the dress if she was um, guilty, because she would have realized that this was an important. It was just done out of hand. But anyway, I was just curious about that term, consciousness of guilt, and is that something that's still used today in trials?
1: Yes, uh, consciousness of guilt is a is a concept that that you'd still see. The idea is basically, if you are if you do something that shows that, if you do something that you wouldn't have done, except for the fact that you're trying to um, cover something up, or that shows that you're aware that something happened that you wouldn't otherwise have knowledge of, that's, you know, that's why it's useful as a piece of evidence. So, I mean, specifically in this case, we know that Lizzie uh, burned a dress on the weekend after the murders. And this is something that you know, it just doesn't look good. Right. (laughs) Uh, Right. Right. I think you could just say that. Uh, And she has a you know, what what she described as an innocent explanation that this was a a dress that had been stained with paint. And the defense was able to produce the seamstress and a painter to show that, yeah, it was an old dress that had been stained with paint.
0: Was it red paint? Um, <laughs> uh, and Was it in the red, crimson, maroon family? No.
1: <laughs> Pardon me. Um and and we know that she she burned it fairly openly. Uh right. you know, that there were police outside when right. she did it. But you know, at the same time, it's very odd that that she would choose a weekend after these terrible murders right. uh, to burn a dress when I mean, that's just, it is, it is odd behavior. And there's also some question of, you know, well, what was on the dress, right? And so you can't know what the prosecution doesn't have is, is say blood on the dress or, you know, the sort of things that would directly link her to the, to the murders. But the, so that the, in the absence of that, what they have is this behavior that seems like guilty, the behavior of a guilty person.
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay. So with that in mind, do you think that the forensic science that we have today do you think it would have solved the crime based on what you know, number one? And number two, is there any way that today's forensic science can be applied to any of the evidence that's remaining in the boarding case?
1: Uh-huh. Uh, well, you know, they did a there was a sort of CSI Fall River quality, yeah. <laughs> not a not a more more comedy than than um than drama. They didn't do a great job. You know, what, what's striking about reading the accounts is how many people just were walking through the crime scene mm-hmm. um, and describing what was there. Uh, so, you know, that's a, that's a pretty clear violation of, of what would be modern procedure. Though they did things like, um, you know, they did autopsies of the bodies. Uh, they examined um, the stomachs for poison, uh, they, you know, they plotted the the various wounds and tried to find uh, what weapons would have could have um, inflicted those that kind of damage. Uh, they picked up rugs and pieces of uh, pieces of molding and uh, measured the number of bloodstains. So they, you know, they did sort of what they could do within their um, within the limitations of the science at the time. Uh, you know, clearly there's more that could be done now, um, but I'm not really sure. Uh, you know, there, there. Uh, as I know they I'm sorry. Um, as you know, there, um, you know, there are people who who thinks that modern forensics would pretty quickly rule her out, right. you know, or or would rule her in depending on um, what they what they found. But you know, I don't. I just don't think that that's what the case is about. At least for them. I mean the. The reason that it would be different now, I I think, is less the forensics um, and the fact that we no longer think it's impossible for a woman to commit this kind of a crime.
0: Yep. That that's the
1: real limitation.
0: Yes. No, I agree. I agree completely. Um, But it was that was something that uh, you mentioned other writers. Uh, Bill James wrote a book called Popular Crime, another one of my favorites. And he did write about this case. And right. He, it's he, very,
1: it, you know, he's a great writer. Yes. So.
0: Yes. And he he felt that the blood spatter would have exonerated her immediately, that she was not found with any blood on her. And I don't buy that. Mr. James, love you, but I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, he also has a he also has a theory about probabilities. Right. That, you you know, you add up the you you add up the various probabilities. Then it seems um, it doesn't seem possible that it was uh, that it was her the 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 issue with the blood spatter i mean was very much explored at the trial and the difficulty is that is that you know we really don't know um how much blood the assailant would have had on him or her mm-hmm. um and, and part of it obviously depends on whether or not there was any kind of covering you know whether that would have been something like um they used to call it a gossamer but you know like a raincoat or a um or, or indeed, a you know address of the kind that was burned, um, but it also depends, you know, when the victims actually died, you know, during the during the assault. In other words, if the, they, they have no way of knowing what the first blow or the which was the first blow or the second blow. So, if in fact they were killed pretty quickly and the heart stopped pumping, then presumably the person standing, you know, the assailant would have had less blood on um, right. You know on the body so i don't know i mean that it, again that seemed to be something that you know was interesting to explore because it it um it also shows the state of science at the time but um what was most interesting to me about that is that you know no matter how many <laughs> medical experts testify that a woman of ordinary strength could have committed <laughs> that crime you know all that all you need is a a handle with sufficient leverage you know so that so that that would be either be a hatchet or an axe you know something that was something that was long enough to um create the force with the swing um no matter how many experts testified that a woman could have done it a woman like lizzie borden could have done it um the defense just insists that a woman couldn't a woman like lizzie borden couldn't have done it physically right. you know it it appears that that there are many people who agree with that you know it's just in it just didn't seem possible, you know. It wasn't about what was, what was scientifically or medically possible. I mean, even though we think, well, we know that Lizzie Borden actually used to chop wood, yeah. Great, right, on right. occasion, yes. Uh, so, and and certainly that's something that would have not counted in favor of Bridget Sullivan had she had the misfortune to be on trial. You know that I think that people would have thought. That, you know, an Irish immigrant whose duties might well have involved chopping wood or slaughtering animals, like would have been capable of doing that. I mean, physically, you know, whether or not it was proven that she'd have a motive or anything like that. But but the sort of the physical impossibility wouldn't wouldn't um, have seemed to play into the case in the same way. And that's that's a very. uh that's a, that's a lens that, you know, comes from a very specific idea of what a, a, an upper middle class woman like Lizzie Borden might be capable of.
0: And that was something, I'm so glad you brought that up, because that was something that I was thinking as I was reading your book. Uh, by the way, we're speaking with Kara Robertson and in her new book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden. The question of, here's the thing, if she had the strength to do it, that's one thing, but would, how would she, it, how can I put this? To, to, to make. Let's say she did it. Let's say she made a plan and this was the plan to do it. How would she know that she could strike an, a hatchet with enough force to, to crack a skull or to kill somebody in order to, to go through with it? You know what I mean? Like, you, you would think that she would have had to know that she could, how in the world could she, you know, even guess that she could do that? But maybe she wasn't thinking. Maybe it was more passion. Right. If she did it.
1: Right. That the you know that's essentially the prosecution argument that that she you know that that the number of blows there's something there's mm-hmm. something kind of feminine about it almost yes. right that they, these aren't that you know a man would have just made a quick job of it right. you know one or two blows get the job done <laughs> and that there's something. Um, the prosecutor even talks about some of the some of the strikes being of a vacillating and feminine nature mm-hmm. you know that there's something that, that there's a frenzy to it right um, and, and that that the explanation for that is you know just this this uh horrible uh, hatred and jealousy of the stepmother you know i mean that's what that's where the argument is focused on this particular point
0: yeah and if that's the case i think to myself boy that that poor Abby must have said something that really set her off.
1: <laughs> you know, I mean? Right, right. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, right. I mean, I should say that, you know, I never, I, I don't have a position. Right. That, that was one I of don't... my questions.
0: Do you, do you, yeah. What do you think
1: happened? Yeah. Well, I just, I think we don't know, you know, right. that, you know, it's an unsolved case for a reason. I mean, partly, partly, I, I, I think I assumed when I started this, that this would just be an example of, of, People just profoundly limited by what they imagine to be women's capabilities, and that and that really, you know, she must have done it. But it, you know, it is true that there, you know, there there are there are real holes in the story, and there, there are things that, you know, it is certainly possible that she didn't. Um, what's what I think is hardest to explain is how she could have been in the house at the same time and and not heard her stepmother's murder yes um that's i mean as you know as someone who's actually spent some time in the house too you know even if you you sort of can understand uh, i mean even though the prosecutor can't understand her her alibi for her father's murder which is that you know she just stopped doing what she was doing and she went out to look for some iron in the barn and stopped and ate some pears that she would picked along the way you know on the on the one hand that's like it's a crazy alibi but it's but it's also um you know it's probably the sort of thing she did during the day right she had a very unstructured life so i mean that seemed to be a um a way in which uh the prosecutor who had um you know a very public life and a life of purpose couldn't really understand what it was like to be a woman and Lizzie Borden's circumstances.
0: I, you know what? I love that point, Kara, because I thought the same thing, you know, and in, 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 I do read a lot of pop, true crime. And one of the things that I love is kind of picking out like an everyday thing and saying, well, well, that's kind of odd. And, and people don't act that way normally. And, you know, see if I can figure that thing out. And in this, case that was one of the things that hit me the prosecution just thought that was hilarious like there's or the yeah there's no way that she walked out up to the barn and ate a couple bears and had a sinker or looked for a sinker there's just no way that that who does that during the day well women did women do mm-hmm. sometimes you know we like to we like to kind of we what's the word I use um putt around we like to put right. around. We're putters. Right, right. You know, and so I could totally see that. I could totally see her taking a pair of me and being like, you know what, I'm just going to hang here for a minute. I want to collect my thoughts. You know, maybe it was the early uh, early meditation. Who knows?
1: <laughs> it was, it was uh, Lizzie Borden's mindfulness ritual. Yes,
0: <laughs> yes. And the prosecutor just could not believe it. He was like, no way. You know, it's just so funny. Yeah.
1: People are people. Uh, right. I mean, that's the, I think that that is, as part of why i um really wanted to leave this uh as open for the reader mm-hmm. um as possible because they're just you know it's not a neat story i think that the 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 thing about trials is that you know every everything tries um uh, that the lawyers try to wrap things up you know at least the prosecution usually does to try to tell a consistent story and things are you know things are often complicated and not quite so neat um, the defense had the, um, you know, the great advantage in this case of of just saying, look, it's not our job to tell you what happened. We're just telling you that this particular thing didn't happen.
0: Exactly, exactly. I, I could go on and on talking to you. But is it, do you have time, Kara? Can I ask you a few more questions? Oh, sure, please. Awesome. Okay. So I'm, I'm uh, honored. Oh, are you kidding me? We're so thrilled to have you. So uh, I noticed that, um, and I think I know the reason for this. And you can tell me if I'm right or not. Or not. And you're going to say, "Oh my gosh, this is not a very bright interviewer." But there were no women. <laughs> there were no women in the jury, and is that because women didn't have the right to vote at that time, and therefore were not called to be jurors?
1: Well, it it uh, it was the case that women didn't serve on the jury in Massachusetts until 1951. 1951,
0: is, ladies, are you I listening? Know. Crazy, is it? It is. Um,
1: there were um, a couple of African-American men actually who were called uh, in the, in what they call the veneer, you know, in other words, the possible members of the, of the jury, but they were, um, you know, they were uh, eliminated or excused. So uh, yeah, it was always going to be, you know, a jury of men. And that's why uh, the audience members, you know, the, the women in the audience are this kind of second, you know, jury who possibly, ah, um, have a different perspective. I mean, it should be noted that they're a lot less sympathetic to Lizzie Borden than the actual
0: jurors. Yep. Yeah. And I wonder where that anger kind of came from where they, yeah, why they thought she did it, obviously, if they were angry.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of them were, you know, they were just fascinated or they were, you know, they were interested in, in, in going to what was, um, after all the most interesting, um, spectacle they they were likely to see you know sort of like um uh, the world's fair in chicago that you know opened the same year um that it it you know it was it was a happening and so people wanted to go but there were um i, I think there was a sentiment uh, uh, about someone um violating the codes right that that um seemed maybe um upsetting to those particular women i mean that, you know the again the crime is very upsetting. So it's not surprising that if you think that the right person is on trial that you know you'd want that person convicted. Yep. Um but I think that there were um there were more men in the audience swayed by the appearance of Lizzie Borden. I mean in all senses, not that she was terribly glamorous. In fact that's something that that um the female reporter that I I talk about or or whose words I use the most Elizabeth Jordan takes great care to debunk that she's actually quite you know ordinary but that there are touches of about her you know that are very feminine like her her efforts to to recurl her hair perfectly right ah. between you know when, when there's a recess that she always comes back with a with one perfect you know curl that that uh, she dresses well that she's mm-hmm. incredibly neat in appearance that you know all these things that are that are um, signifiers of of a class. You know that shows that she's what would have been called the lady,
0: right? Interesting the the feminine the femininity. Wow! But that but and that had you know jurors thinking, well, maybe she didn't do it because she's feminine.
1: Well, I'm not sure it was the, you know
0: it's quite that reductive. But
1: they're but they're again you know they're struck with this this woman in the courtroom who just doesn't. Look at all like the kind of person that they would expect to have committed such brutal crimes. Yeah, right. and they, you know, they're actually, you know, they're subjected. They see the skulls. You know, yeah, they, exactly. They, see, they have they have these horrifying pictures. They have they have exhibits that show how much blood there was all around. And and so then they, you know, they look at this woman, this veiled woman with a fan who's sitting in front of them, and it's just it is a bit hard to to put the two together, regardless of, of the circumstantial evidence against her.
0: I get it. Yep. Ted Bundy, but whatever. Um, no, I get it. No, I <laughs> No, I under, Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So you, the research that you did, and I wanted to mention as well that the writing is sublime, uh, very well written. Oh, thank you. Wonderfully <laughs> written, easy to read too, but wonderfully well written. And um, you must have done an amazing amount of research. Uh, one of the things that you write about is the fact that the prosecution uh, have retained records I- about this case and they're sealed. Could you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So the, there were it's actually a defense lawyer.
0: Oh, OK. Oh, a defense. lawyer. So, right. OK. I'm
1: sorry. Uh, well, there, are they're you know, they're funny things with the with the. Uh, uh, the records of this case The you know, the transcript has been available um, and. Uh, so researchers have have seen that before. But um, there, there are sort of two, there are two stories. I'll just tell you both. There are papers uh, and journals of one of the defense lawyers uh, who broke with Lizzie Borden after the murders. Ooh. Uh, and I mean, after the trial was over. That's interesting. And, and he just stuck, <laughs> he just stuck them in what's called a hip bath, you know, which is basically what you know, you use for a sitz bath, you know, sort of, it's just a shallow little basin yeah. um, and stuck them in his uh, attic. And then, you know, in, in kind of cranky Yankee style, the <laughs> the attic, more stuff was added to the attic. And then eventually it was cleaned out and uh, the papers came into the possession of the Fall River Historical Society. So that, I mean, it's just an odd um an odd story of, you know, research happenstance that that they eventually um, became available. And then the, the more um, infuriating story, I think, for a researcher is that Lizzie Borden's lead defense lawyer, who is the, you know, the big trial lawyer, former governor of Massachusetts, who was called in by the local lawyer to help defend Lizzie Borden. He, you know, he had a long career, um, but in 1896, so three years after the murders, he just sort of dropped dead unexpectedly. Uh, And he was part of a, um, he had a partnership and that partnership kind of continues with additional people to the present day. So, and he has some Lizzie Borden papers or he has some things related to his uh, work on the case. We don't know what they are because uh, the law firm's position is that they're still bound by the duty of confidentiality that, that um, he owed to Lizzie Borden, and so that they, uh, they won't let anyone see the papers. They say that they've, they've had a preliminary ruling or uh, some sort of preliminary assessment by the um, Massachusetts Board of Bar Overseers, and it would be a violation of legal ethics to let anyone see the case. But we do know, I mean, the, the papers, but they, you know, we do know that they preserve them. Ah. Um, and so it's a very, it's an odd situation. You know, I asked the managing partner at the time, um, you know, if, if your position is that you can't ever disclose them or even describe them, then why preserve them? Right. Um, and uh, he said, you know, he said his, that it would be abhorrent to destroy them. You know, in other words, acknowledging that they they have historical significance that they relate to this you know important trial of the late 19th century um and so they're just sort of being preserved locked away and we don't know what's what's in them
0: did he read them
1: oh yeah yeah he's read them um but you know of course he's he's he believes he's bound by this um duty as well right. i mean what I have, um, I mean, I'll spare you the long, the long story of it, but, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I have a fairly, pretty good idea of what's in there. And, and I, I know there's nothing that's a, you know, smoking gun, you know, we'd love to, I'd love to know if there, you know, if there was something definitive one way or the other, but I do think that there would be material that would be quite interesting because it would give us a perspective on what the, um, that trial lawyer was actually thinking, about the the quality of the evidence against lizzie borden i mean we we do know i think quite confidently that he genuinely believed that she was innocent at the time you know based on he he insisted on talking with her for for some period of time before he agreed to take the case and and he um announced to his um future colleagues that you know of course she's innocent uh and i and i think we we can take him at his, at his word then that that's what his belief was, you know, and he assumes this kind of paternal role with her that's done very deliberately, you know, and it's quite, it's, it's, um, you know, I think it's, it's supposed to call to mind the fact that she does not have a father to protect her anymore, you know, in the courtroom, which is, which is, you know, it's a bit rich if she, of course, did kill him. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> but it's something that, that <laughs> um, again, conforms to the ideal that, you know, that that, that here's this helpless woman who's being defended by uh, these men who are vindicating her honor because she doesn't have, you know, another male relative to to stand and um, to stand in
0: public for her. That's right. It's like the, the the orphans complaining that they have no parents, but they killed their <laughs> parents, right?
1: <laughs> right. The, I, and I think that I think there, someone famously, I think, you know, Andrew Wallacott or something called a called her a self-made orphan.
0: Right. 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 It's so. True. So, yeah. but the 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 papers are from the defense lawyer who broke from her the papers that yeah the papers that we have um
1: and those are in possession of the fall river historical society and they've they've published some of it um just recently from from the um lawyers journals and they're mostly clippings and then also notes about witnesses that they followed up gotcha on um so that you know they're interesting but they're you know they're not something that proves anything you know either way
0: Yep, and you didn't stop there, Kara. In terms of the story, you did go on to describe a little bit of what happened to Lizzie in her life after the trial. I don't know if you want to leave that for the reader or if you want to speak to that at all.
1: I'm happy to. I'm happy to talk about it. It's a, it's whether you, whether you think it's a, too much of a spoiler. I mean, I think it's an interesting piece of the story. You know, we we know that you know there's this incredibly by by nineteenth century standards, there's this incredibly long trial. You know, it lasts it lasts over two weeks. Uh, the closing arguments alone last over you know last a day and a half. Uh, and the assumption is this is something that it might take a while for the jurors to consider. But in fact, you know, they're unanimous on the first ballot, and and they they just sit in there for a while longer so that so that it looks like they've been very deliberative, <laughs> and to show respect for the prosecutor you know, and they come in and they announce that um, Lizzie Borden is not guilty. The courtroom erupts, uh, people outside the courtroom, you know, erupt their, you know, extras of newspapers. And uh, Lizzie Borden returns home to Fall River, you know, where she, you know, in a way that perhaps anticipates O.J. Simpson, says that she, you know, she and her sister will be looking for the, for the actual murderer, you know, they won't rest. And the assumption is that she's just going to go return to her normal life and kind of live it down, try to live down the notoriety. And instead, you know, she lives it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. She and her sister moved to the a sort of McMansion in the Hill District, which <laughs> is the elite residential district in Fall River, the place that that apparently she had always wanted to live. And She does some traveling. She goes to the theater in Boston. She does some things that are, you know, kind of inconsistent with her prior image. And she finds herself pretty quickly frozen out of the church that had formed the bedrock of her support during the trial. She and her sister, you know, she she goes to the church and the pews are empty around her, you know, so she gets the message pretty quickly. And so, you know, there is a sense in which there's a kind of tribal judgment, you know, in other words, that, the, that these people are people who will who support her against outsiders when she's accused of this horrible thing that right. kind of puts them all in disrepute, but then they exact their own kind of punishment, you know, whether it's because that they've simply, you know, brought the town and she's brought the town into disrepute or, or because they think, well, maybe she actually did do it. She, you know, she endures a certain kind of ostracism, but it's also true that, that, uh, you know, she doesn't, seem to be that distressed by it i mean we don't we don't know for sure you know we know we but but we know that she continues to live in fall river for the remainder of her life A- and that i think that shows something about her you know that that's that again you know you can read it in more than one ways but it does show her nerve mm-hmm. um and also maybe the uh, her provincialism right that that she sort of can't imagine Anything better or different, right? That that's where she she wanted to be, yeah. And so that's where she remains.
0: That's interesting. And and that was another thing that I liked about the book was that it really does make you think. And you you're able to. And there's humor in it as well. You're you make a comment here or there that that had me chuckling. But just the fact that it's up to the reader to decide. You know, how do you interpret? That this happened. How do you interpret that that happened? Uh, and I love that. I love love books that make me think. Oh, well, thank you.
1: <laughs> I you know I enj- I enjoyed uh, working on it. Obviously, and um, I just think it's a fascinating
0: story. It really is for all for all the reasons that we've we've brought up in this interview. So, um, real quick, I wanted to ask you about the the publishing process. How exciting to be published! This is your first book. Yes. How did you like? Tell us, like, what's the story? How did you get the publisher, and what was your, you know, thought on writing it? And did you find an agent first? And what do you think? How do you like it? Uh,
1: yeah, I was, I was lucky to to have an agent, and uh, you know, it it took me a long time to to figure out how to write the book, mm-hmm. and you know, once I th- I think this probably happens with other people too. You know, once they once you figure out how you want to do it, then it it seems pretty obvious. You know. <laughs> that I wondered. I wondered afterwards why did it take so long to figure this out? That that's the way I wanted to to present it. Right. Um, but it did take a long time, and obviously a lot of um, a, a lot of research. And and you know, in my case, I would say that the the length of time worked in my favor, and that and that more material became available. Wow. You know, that had not been available at the time. You know, as I as I mentioned the the crazy story of the um, the lawyers' payer, papers in the hip bath. Um, you know that those weren't available you know other things that that weren't available that give you a very different image of Lucy Borden um, as some material from her later life Uh, we know that you know that it it had always been known that you know she lived out her life in Fall River and there were you could see the house and um, the difference between that house and the house she grew up in and and have a sense of what that life might have been like but it turns out that she, you know, befriended many members of her domestic staff, uh, including their children, and and sent the kids special delivery postcards or notes for their birthdays. Mm. Um, and so there are these postcards Nuh-uh. from Lizzie Borden with, you know, with little rabbits on them and other kind of almost saccharine images. Oh my gosh. And, you know, they're signed from Auntie Borden. Ooh. Uh, and... Well, it's just it gives you an entirely different perspective it on Lizzie does. Borden. Yeah. But, you know, as as do some of the images of her, you know, and uh, taking a having a picnic, you know, so she's this old lady in in white linen um, sitting out at having a picnic in the countryside. And it's just hard to imagine that this is the same, you know, woman who was accused of of killing her father and stepmother with a with a hatchet. Um,
0: <laughs> and did, did but, she ever did she ever was she ever interviewed after no she was she um (laughs) on advice of counsel we suggest that you keep your mouth shut you
1: know most sorry (laughs) most of most of her um most of the evidence of the discord in the household you know which weighed against her came from lizzie borden herself you know because she was kind of famously forthright she was someone who resembled her father in that in that respect a kind of tough character though she as she you know she talked perhaps too much in that respect um unlike him but anyway no she never said anything um about the murders uh and i guess the only other the you know the other kind of intriguing bit about that is that is that her sister emma you know backed her entirely during the trial testified that she's the one who told her to burn the dress which you know, just doesn't seem very likely. But what a nice that's what big she, sister. She said, <laughs> she said under oath, Aww. you know, uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that she supported her obviously was a big help um, because, you know, it meant that she didn't believe that she was the murderer uh, and she and Lizzie, you know, moved together to this big house on the Hill. But then about 12 years after the, um, after the trial, Emma moved out and then they never spoke again, you know, until they, and they died you know, within a month of each other.
0: Wow, wow.
1: And we don't know what the reason for the for the breach was. But, you know, it had to have been something pretty substantial, right, for there to be absolutely no communication after that, you know, and, and it was at that point that the few the remaining people who, you know, had still been socially in contact with Lizzie Borden cut her too, you know, that they definitely sided with Emma.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. So that was pretty clear, too. Is the house still there? And I should mention in the book, you have a lot of pictures, which is fabulous. Yeah, I think the
1: pictures help they know, do. To, to give you a sense of the location. It's a it's a, um, a striking town. I mean, it's it, it doesn't really you know, it's hard to convey how how much wealth there was in the town, given how it you know, given given its its current condition. But it's also a town that, um, you know, it's a little bit like Hong Kong and that the topography you know, mirrors this, the social, the social levels of the town too. So that if you, you know, if you lived, if you lived near the nearest the water, that that's nearest the mills. And that's, you know, where for the most part, working class people lived. And then there was a a flat district that was the business district and was also the place where, you know, middle-class professionals would live. And that's where Lizzie, Emma, Andrew, and Abby lived, mostly so that Andrew could just, you know, walk to collect his rents and do that sort of thing. And then there was uh, on what is really a high level of elevation, this hill district where the mansions of Fall River were,
0: and that's where she wanted to be, Listen. and that's where she ended up. Yeah, and that's where she ended yeah. up. <laughs> Draw your own conclusions. No, I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> well, actually, where she truly ended up was in the um, was in the the you know the town cemetery, along with her father, her oh wow, wow. Emma, her, her actual mother, her biological mother, and, and an infant sister who, you know, who died um, oh, very wow. early. How bad. But they're all reunited. Yeah.
0: <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah. Right. Yikes. Okay. And do people see that? Is that a like a visitation spot? Is that a?
1: Yeah, yeah people go. I mean, I've, I've gone there a few times and seeing, you know, various tokens left. Oh, wow. Um, t- which is, it's a little weird. Yeah, um, The the house where the murders took place is a bed and breakfast. So Ooh. you can, in fact, stay there or, or go for a tour. Um, it had been owned by some people who then bought the the post-murder house. Uh, and then that, I think they attempted to open that as a bed and breakfast for some zoning issues. I really don't, I, I don't know the details. But I do know that the, the current, the, the house where the murders took place has now been bought by a business that that focuses on the paranormal. Oh wow! Uh, so it's sort of a you know ghost hunting psychic sight.
0: Oh, so interesting. And so so Kara, is this going to be? I hope this is not going to be your last book. What's what's next on the horizon for you, milady?
1: <laughs> I'm working on a book on the the 1926 disappearance of Amy Semple McPherson. Oh yeah, who was America's um, most famous evangelist before Billy Graham.
0: Okay. Um, Is that, no, not, there was a show, um, The Young Perry Mason. Was that her?
1: Yes. Uh, okay. She, that, that character was definitely inspired by nice. um, McPherson. Um, can't wait. Yeah, there's a Sister Alice character. Excellent. Um, yeah, But she's, she's, in fact, she's, she's they, they kind of toned it down for the-, for
0: the Stop it. Um, yeah. Because she's yeah. pretty out there on the show. Uh huh. Wow. Yeah. She's a fascinating, a fascinating figure. Oh well, I can't, I cannot wait to read it. And how do you find the whole like publishing, author, publishing, marketing situation? Do you enjoy marketing for the book? Well, I enjoy these kinds
1: of you know conversations. <laughs> I feel very fortunate um, when I get to talk with people who are you know interested in the story. And obviously, it's a, of course it's a pleasure when when you talk to someone who actually liked your book. Yeah. Um, who actually read it and and. Uh, um so that you know that's an extraordinary opportunity that for which I'm very grateful. I mean, I'd say that the the part that i I enjoyed most was doing it. you know i really I really like I really love an archive.
0: Yes, I really
1: like being immersed in the research and in the world, you know, in a different world in that way. Uh, and then I found actually committing it to paper very satisfying, sometimes really difficult, but also extremely satisfying. And so, that's the part that's been the best as much as I've enjoyed, as I said, being able to talk about it with people who are interested.
0: Absolutely. Anything surprise you about the publishing process? Well,
1: it's, it's all very
0: strange. You know,
1: <laughs> I, yes. I don't know, you, you, especially for, for someone who writes, um, I think, for someone who writes nonfiction. I mean, you're just, you're, you know, you're in there in the archives. I spent so much time in the um, basement of the Fall River Historical Society. The first time I I I had an interview, I was like, Oh, my God, I'm above ground.
0: Yes, yes. Right.
1: It's very strange. You know, I wish I I wish I had a, you know, some kind of profound, profound comment. But I I think, you know, you just have to really believe that that you have a story that's worth telling. Mm. And then and and enjoy the process because there, you know, there are no guarantees to how it's going to turn out.
0: Right. You're right. Um, That's such great advice. Enjoy the process. No, seriously. And my my listeners would kill me if I did not ask you the time frame. How long did it take you from, you know, conception to research to actually finishing your manuscript?
1: Oh, well, I don't want to horrify your readers because, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because it it took forever uh, or, you know, it often felt like forever. You know, this is a this was a story that, uh, uh, you know, as we said at the outset, that that um, I first was interested in when I was in college uh, and so I picked it up and put it down at various times because I was interested in different aspects of it. But I'd say the 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 research and um, writing of it about fifteen years,
0: Wow. okay. And then in this next book, what what do you anticipate? Uh, I'm hoping for I'm hoping for more like five. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Kara Robertson, for being with us. Her brand new book is called, the Trial of Lizzie Borden and and we only believe it or not scratch the surface on what is in that book. It's it's a fabulous look and research very well researched book, terrifically well written. It will make you think on a variety of different levels. It's a fabulous book. Thank you so much, Kara. And also, um, tell our listeners where they can find you. Uh you can find me
1: at my website, www.karaw. Robertson.com.
0: Very good. And I'll put that in the show notes for anybody who would like to check it out. Thanks again, Kara, and good luck on your next book. I hope you come back to speak with us when you're finished.
1: Oh, thank you. I've been I'd be thrilled. This has really been a pleasure.
0: Thank you, Cara. You've been listening to Get Your Book Seen and Sold with Claudine Walk, my Substack account, Claudinewalk.substack.com. Sign up for my newsletter today.